Are American Jews becoming more distant from the state of Israel? Are Jewish Christian and Jewish Muslim relations on the rocks? What makes someone pro-Israel? Should Israel bashers be part of the Jewish community umbrella? To wrestle with these questions, on the week we observe Yom HaShoah, we're joined by Yehuda Kurtzer, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Plus, Jared and I go head-to-head on the top issues of the day. You won't miss a second. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, how was your Pesach, your Passover? My Pesach was good, you know, uh... I think it's always a good thing to limit the carbs. And, you know, now that we have a biblical commandment or that we have a biblical commandment to do that, I think is, uh, you know, always helps us to some, some better health along the way. Um, you know, in all seriousness, this was a very meaningful Pesach for me in that uh, I was thinking of my friends and colleagues in the Ukraine where I spent Passover in 2001 doing social service work visiting orphanages, uh, Holocaust survivors, and seeing the rebirth of, of Soviet Jewry, post-Soviet Union, it's really heartbreaking to see what is going on there today, but also extremely inspiring to see Jews in Odessa, in Kiev, in the, the places under fire, uh, you know, having satyrs observing the holiday. I think even Jake Tapper uh, was there to do a do an interview with President Zelensky, and he actually had a seder and was tweeting about it. Uh, and if that doesn't embody the spirit of Am Yisrael Chai, I, I don't know what does. And coming after just our last guest, Elliot Cohen, who I think made a lot of news here on the podcast, uh, talking in part about the lack of a U.S. diplomatic presence there. Why did we close down the embassy? Why did we pull out uh, our State Department personnel? He became even more vocal following our podcast. And in fact, uh, we have seen now movement uh, from the White House with first a trip by Secretary Blinken uh, and uh, our Defense Secretary as well, Lloyd Austin, uh, going to Ukraine, meeting uh, with President Zelensky. Uh, And now we understand perhaps uh, the reopening of some diplomatic operations, at least in the West and Lviv, still waiting for the reopening of the embassy in Kiev, but perhaps that, that would come soon as well. I mean, I think as usual, policymakers are listening to the Limited Liability Podcast and taking the best, best policy recommendations we have and, and that our guests have and implementing them within days. And I think that, you know, we should continue to strive for that uh, high level of debate, Rich. Well, many of those uh, sort of policy recommendations, I would love them to listen to. Uh, We harp on a lot on this show. Uh, One of them is on the Human Rights Council. I know we've had this uh, back and forth uh, over the last few months. Uh, I am deeply skeptical of the Human Rights Council. I believe we should not be a part of that council. It elects human rights abusers. And, of course, we have a back and forth here where we saw first in the Obama administration with Secretary Hillary Clinton... Uh, And then now again here uh, with the Biden administration, this idea that you can seek to reform an organization from within, even if it's really inherently flawed and and broken as the Human Rights Council is. And that was their thesis to go back into the Human Rights Council after the Trump administration had pulled out. And we have seen, of course, growing concern out of the Congress, bipartisan concerns, calling on the administration to do everything they can to stop this commission of inquiry that we've talked about in the past, uh, looking at Israel, trying to set up Israel for an apartheid charge, 
really the height of anti-Semitism in my view. And we have not seen anything uh, be able to stop that yet. There's no vote scheduled. They went through the last session of the Human Rights Council. No vote to reverse, revise, repeal this commission of inquiry. They'll have another bite of the apple in June, unless a report is issued before that or, or around June uh, may come out to try to, again, repeal this commission of inquiry. But we see them touting some success, that they were able to rally the international community to expel Russia, at least suspend their, their voting rights as their membership. They were elected to the Human Rights Council, the General Assembly taking a vote there. It took them a little while, but did get a meeting of the Human Rights Council and a Human Rights Council vote to condemn Russia, a rare occurrence. Your views on this, Jared, I, I could keep going on. I probably will after you talk. <laughs> Well, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens now that we are in the post-Abraham Accords era. And with with credit to your former boss for probably his one singular foreign policy achievement, uh, there is a different landscape in the Arab world vis-a-vis Israel now. And I'm interested to see how that plays out in terms of the Human Rights Council. Is there uh, a less unanimous sentiment for condemning Israel? Are there more nations, particularly in the Gulf uh, and other Arab, and other Muslim majority nations who are uh, less scared to either be neutral or openly supportive of Israel even than they were two years ago or three years ago? And so I think that the hallmark of, of the Biden administration, at least thus far, and we've seen it on Ukraine, and I, I believe, and I know we're going to talk about Iran in a minute, uh, I think that their hallmark is to avoid as many public pronouncements as they can until they're ready to deliver. Uh, and I think that that's what you see going on with this Human Rights Council um, vote and, and commission of inquiry, that there is a lot of work going on behind the scenes to try and uh, cut this off at the pass. Um, whether they'll be successful, you know, remains to be seen. And of course, we celebrate that Russia has been suspended from the council. Great work, everybody. China still a member elected to the Human Rights Council, right? Cuba, still an elected member of the Human Rights Council. Uh, we look, others still there. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just sort of, it's sort of nuts. So yeah, yeah, we had Russia on there, but, but what are you doing about the other human rights abusers uh, on the council? Venezuela, uh, another one I, I had thought of before, on the council today, right? Massive human rights abusers uh, of, of, of the world, elected to the Human Rights Council. And to your point, Jared, interestingly, who else is on the council today? The UAE. The UAE is on the council today. Are they playing a behind-the-scenes role to help the United States and Israel roll back this commission of inquiry? Couldn't we now make the case that, listen, there's a lot going on in the world. Russia, we need to be investigating true war crimes, true crimes against humanity that will continue to build. Let's take the staff and money set aside for this persecution of the one Jewish state in the world and put it to actual good use by dedicating that staff and resource to investigating Russian war crimes, Russian crimes against humanity in Ukraine. I expect to see a vote called for by the United States in June. If there is no vote called for, I don't, and I, you know what? If they lose the vote, they lose the vote. And then I expect the United States and others to say, we're done with this council because that will mean the council is engaged in anti-Semitism, in my view, and, and not just my view, the working definition of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which says that trying to label Israel an apartheid state, Zionism is racism, are completely inherently anti-Semitic concepts. So 
uh, I don't want people to get distracted. We we need. It's great that Russia has been suspended. Keep holding them accountable. What about the other human rights abusers? And what is going to be done to stop pure, unadulterated anti-Semitism from coming forward from the Human Rights Council as early as June? And and I agree. And and I share your hope that uh, that that we have some compelling action on the part of of our government. I think uh, in Secretary Blinken and, and President Biden, you have people who are very attuned to this issue, who have been working on it a long time. Um, and I expect. Although I have no insider knowledge that you will see uh, the result that we that you're looking for uh, in and around June. But will I see the result I'm looking for anytime with respect to the Iran nuclear deal, Jared? I ask you. <laughs> I ask you, Jared Bernstein. Well, well, I'll tell you what, Rich. I don't know that there is a nuclear deal uh, short of full surrender from the Iranian regime that would um, that would satisfy you and other harsh critics of the jcpoa so i don't know what that that deal looks like if we if we started from scratch that said i think many of the points of concern that you raised uh about the uh, about how the negotiations are going and is this something that's being spearheaded by rob malley or is this joe biden or tony blinken and whose whose agenda is going to win out here uh i think that Joe Biden is very much a the buck stops with me kind of guy, particularly on Iran and particularly what we from what we know about the deliberations on the first JCPOA and what role he played in those deliberations. Um, I don't foresee a resolution, a deal that drops the uh, th- that the case on the IRGC designation. Just don't see it happening. I know that that's a point we've talked a lot about here. I just don't think uh, President Biden's going to put his name on something like that. And we saw 900 Gold Star family members sent a letter to the White House uh, just this past week asking the president not to remove the IRGC, that's the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, from the foreign terrorist organization list that the State Department holds. This is separate from Treasury Department sanctions. Uh, These are different authorities that come with uh, different uh, advantages for the United States to counter terror financing, to hold terror financers criminally liable, not just civilly, uh, to deny immigration uh, visas uh, to anybody who's affiliated uh, potentially with with a foreign terrorist organization. Not symbolic uh, that uh, some people are trying to say out there that I've heard. Um, It's very, very meaningful. And it's become a critical node in the civil litigation that families of the American victims of terrorism, including Gold Star families, have brought against Iran. The idea that the IRGC is designated as an FTO, a foreign terrorist organization, is critical to them. So I have seen the reporting that, that, that the Biden administration is saying they won't back down on it. There's a lot of wiggle room. There's a lot of couching of words that we're seeing. You know, Are they talking about the IRGC in its entirety or just the Quds Force? Are we going to start getting into a military wing and a political wing of the IRGC, the way some people have tried to call for for Hezbollah and Hamas for the years? I don't know. I don't know. And by the way, we, by the, way the way we've separated the IRA and Sinn Féin, in fairness, right? Uh, that, that is That is true. That is true. And there are plenty of critics of that approach as well. Yeah. Um, I, I don't believe you can separate political sides from from a terrorist organization. That That is the wing to raise money. That is the wing to raise political support. It is the wing to try to normalize terrorist activities. Um, I wouldn't support that for Hezbollah. I wouldn't support it for Hamas. And I certainly don't support it for the IRGC. 
We did see a readout of a call between uh, the Prime Minister of Israel and the President, uh, where uh, apparently there is a commitment potentially for the President to go to Israel uh, later in the year, so that's exciting. Uh, whether that will be a make good for the JCPOA minus uh, or uh, actually a show of strength because there may not be a nuclear deal, we don't know yet. Uh, but I, I would say this, Jared. The president is trying to message that he believes the IRGC is a terrorist organization. Whether or not he ends up removing them from the terror list, I, I don't know. But he's saying, and senior members of the administration are saying, they are terrorists. It's a terrorist organization. Why then have they already agreed to lift terrorism sanctions on the financiers of that terrorist organization? The Central Bank of Iran, the oil company, the tanker company, the petrochemical company, a whole bunch of other banks in Iran all found to be financing the terrorism of the IRGC. That's where I think he's walking himself into a whole bunch of strategic contradictions here. Yes, the IRGC is a terrorist organization, but I'll lift sanctions on all the financiers of the terrorist organizations and make sure the terrorist organization gets billions of dollars in sanctions relief. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I mean, Rich, again, I think that we've, you know, we as pundits, get to comment on the news as it comes out, get to comment on what the deal, we think the deal is going to look like until the deal is done. And until there's a deal, there's no deal. And, and and so I don't think any of us are really in a position to say what's in it or not in it when it's all said and done. We know what the strategic leaks are. We both spend time in Washington, that there's lots of reasons that people strategically leak things, some of which are to spark conversations like we're having right now, um, some of which are to give themselves negotiating room uh, or to, you know, carrot stick and all that. And so I think until there's a deal, there's not really a deal. That is absolutely true, though there's also no plan B on the table from the administration. That's what worries me. There's no signaling that here's the deadline. We're pulling the plug on May 1st, and then we're going to be applying maximum pressure. We're going to the Security Council. We're going to the International Atomic Energy Agency and pushing for a censure resolution. Or we're going to roll out the bombers and really show them we're, we're ready to, to use military force. Or we're going to do something with Israel. There's nothing, right? So they keep enriching. We keep doing nothing. The Iranians seem pretty happy with the status quo. The Russians clearly want this to continue on the status quo. Iran is Russia's ally, not ours. The Russians uh, do stand to make a lot of money in the Iran deal, but... I believe this from the start, that Vladimir Putin has been aligning the Iran deal news with the Ukraine plan, and what's going wrong for Putin in Ukraine and all of his best schemes uh, is, I believe, core to why we have not seen a JCPOA minus yet. Well, I don't know that I would I would refer to it as a JCPOA minus, but nice branding. Um, but, you know, listen, it's a complicated world out there, right? And there's, there's two crises going on at once that involve a lot of the same actors, a lot of the same considerations. Um, and so, you know, it's walking and chewing gum at the same time in the international arena is more complicated than it sounds. Uh, it's probably more like three-dimensional chess than it is walking and chewing gum. So I think while they're not directly linked, Russia being a key actor in both of these conflicts and China, frankly, being a key actor in both these conflicts and 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 how they want to play ball is is incredibly telling here i think from from where i'm sitting 
we will know more about the um, state of the Russian advance in the east of Ukraine in the next two to three weeks and if it's going to work or if they're going to get beaten back there. And I think you may see then a shift in negotiations vis-a-vis Iran relative to Iran's relative to Russia's success or not success in the Eastern offensive in Ukraine. And and, and I do think that's right. I, I think Putin's probably doing a cost benefit of, I get a get out of jail free card from international sanctions pressure through Iran, which is valuable for several billions of dollars. Um, but at the same time, Iran's oil comes back on the market. I am personally skeptical whether that's really going to drive the price of oil down, but maybe he believes it's possible and he wants to keep the price of oil as high as possible until somebody actually goes after his oil revenue through sanctions, which hasn't been done yet. And then maybe that's the timing of, okay, now now I, I need a get-out-of-jail-free card from sanctions. We'll see. It's a complicated world. I wish the United States had a clear, clear-eyed policy, which was if you're aligned with Russia and China, if you're aligned with Iran— you know there is an axis. There, there are there are actually, you know, aligned nations against U.S. interests. And when we decide to lift sanctions or to go easy or to cozy up to one of those countries, it is against our interests. And that's the bigger strategic picture. I think we fail to to see in all of these Iran negotiations. I, I mean, I, and I would just kind of push back at you about this idea of an axis, only insofar as I agree that that. Iran and Russia's interests and China's interests are are not are adverse to ours, but I think they're very three different actors with three internally complicated systems, um, and their the interests are different. Right? Uh, they may they may coalesce, they may be on the same page, they may uh, coincide, but. China and Russia vis-a-vis the Ukraine conflict are very different, right? Uh, China hasn't signaled that they're willing to pump the brakes on Russia, but they also haven't gone all in to support Russian aggression here like they could be. Uh, And I think that's very telling. And, you know, given the nature, you know, while if we broke off all trade with Russia, which, you know, we're moving in that direction, um, it has the economy the size of Texas, um, Doing something like that with China would have much more disastrous effects on our own economy and the economy of Western Europe. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's uh, like I said, three-dimensional chess here, not checkers or walking and chewing gum. Finally, before we get to our guest, Jared, Yom HaShoah this week. Uh, we remember the six million. We remember uh, the lessons and the stories we were told as children lessons and stories that thank God uh, for the Spielberg project and other projects uh, are curated uh, for history uh, for our children to watch, but increasingly fewer and fewer people around uh, still living to tell those stories the way we heard them as when we were children. Yeah. You know, I remember uh, being taught as a child, but not hearing about it firsthand because he didn't like to talk about it. But from my grandfather who uh, liberated Buchenwald, with the third army and was a combat engineer and as a Jew from New York had to do burials at Buchenwald as a liberator and uh, how complicated that was for him and, and being retold the story from other people in my family, because he obviously did not want to talk about it. Uh, And juxtaposing that with time spent with professor Ellie Wiesel near the end of his life uh, and talking with him about his experience and, and, it being incumbent on all of us to continue to bear witness and, you know, as two people who are raising young kids now, you know, to double down on that because there won't be 
many survivors last you know in the next five years we there'll be single digits or double digits um, and so we need to really double down on that commitment as a people and, and as a world and we've seen some of the public polling over the last couple of years uh, some of our listeners may have, may have seen some of these stories where Americans have been polled to see you know our kids learning about the Holocaust do they understand it a lot of states have mandates to teach about the Holocaust in public schools uh, and there are a lot of organizations that have done great work developing curriculum to support that Simon Wiesenthal uh, comes to mind others as well and you see just ridiculously low numbers of understanding of basic facts of the Holocaust now of kids coming out of the public schools throughout the country. And it's scary. It's very scary. And it's not just scary for the general public. I think that's a scary sentiment as well that you can, you can really dive into. I think it's scary for our own community. And we look at the way the world has changed. American Jews have changed attitudes towards our own community, attitudes towards Israel. And I do wonder, as we continue the generations that are more distant from survivors, more distant from a feeling of this could happen again, um, understanding that something so horrific did happen in a westernized, liberal, progressive, leading the world intellectually, uh, in music and in literature and, and all kinds of studies, it happened there. Uh, and it could absolutely happen again. And having the refuge of a Jewish state of Israel is so important. No, our Zionism, the support for Israel, the justification for Israel is not the Holocaust. Uh, people who, who believe that uh, are wrongheaded. Um, obviously, Zionism predates the Holocaust. But the idea that having the state of Israel can be a fail-safe against another one or other kinds of persecutions like it is real and is not really valued, I'm afraid, by younger generations today. Yeah, um, you know, I think that it is uh, the information overload that younger generations receive today. It's harder and harder to break through, both when something is a further historical event um, and the amount of channels, the amount of content, the amount of awareness. Um, and, and frankly, we need to, as a community, stop vilifying each other um, and work on, you know, work on our uh, work on our unity as we confront this topic. Uh, I think no better a segue, Jared, to our guest, where I think we'll talk a lot about this. Uh, Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Yehuda is a leading author on the meaning of Israel to American Jews, on Jewish history and Jewish memory, and on questions of leadership and change in American Jewish life. He received his doctorate in Jewish studies from Harvard University and an MA in religion from Brown University, and is an alumnus of both the Bronfman Youth and Wexner Graduate Fellowships. Previously, Yehuda served as a faculty member at Brandeis University, where he held the inaugural chair in Jewish communal innovation. He is the author of Shuva, The Future of the Jewish Past, which offers new thinking to contemporary Jews on navigating the tensions between history and memory. He is also the co-editor of The New Jewish Canon, a collection of the most significant Jewish ideas and debates of the past two generations. Dr. Kurtzer, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. The state of Jewish-Christian relations, the state of Jewish-Muslim relations, I know these are two interests of yours and of, of the Institute. 
maybe take them in order. How do you assess both of those relationships today, Dr. Kircher? So both Jewish-Christian relations and Jewish-Muslim relations, as we see them at Hartman, are, um, I wouldn't say they're they're struggling in the same ways, but they in many ways are facing the same challenge, which is Zionism in the state of Israel. So if you take Jewish-Christian relations, you know, there was a huge industry built around Jewish-Christian relations after the Holocaust. Uh, a lot of kind of Christian theological reckoning and rethinking of what what Jewish powerlessness and Christian power uh, resulted in for, for Jews. And, um, and you saw a lot of work in the Catholic Church and some of the Protestant churches around rethinking the nature of that relationship. And a lot of that uh, has kind of just been challenged by the last 20 or 30 years, uh, especially as it relates to Zionism. Uh, we've seen the emergence in, in the progressive side of the church in a number of Protestant denominations with a growing number of anti-Israel BDS resolutions, which are not merely political. They wind up oftentimes trafficking in all sorts of theological rhetoric around, um, you know, this is, it's almost like the Jews are falling short of who we're supposed to be in the world through the existence of Jewish power. Uh, and and that story, we could spend a lot of time on that, but that story is in parallel in many ways um, with Muslims. Obviously, the creation of the state of Israel totally throws a relationship between Jews and the Muslim world into turmoil. You know, it results in essentially the collapse of most of the Jewish communities where um, uh, uh, under Islam, where Jewish Jews lived um, in the Middle East. Uh, and, and our work has been in America trying to create opportunities opportunities to see whether Jews and Muslims in America could actually have a conversation about what it, what the state of Israel does to the relationship that could be uh, between our communities. But both of them are really challenged uh, by, by the prevalence of, of the political in this relationship. Dr. Kircher, if I could do a sort of deeper dive on that last point you made. Um, so I live in New York, uh, as I like to call it, the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk a lot here about how Jews and Muslims get along in New York or don't get along. Um, tell us a little bit about what you think the state of maybe New York Jewish-Muslim relations are. Very visible, sizable Jewish community, very diverse Jewish community, very diverse yeah. Muslim community um, with lots of strands and individual relationships with the Jewish communities they live side by side with. Look, writ large, you know, to be an American Jew is to live through a project of getting along with your neighbors that virtually no Jew in Jewish history living in a diaspora place has ever experienced. Uh, it's really unusual and remarkable. Um, I, I think you guys probably know this better than anyone else, but we have much more internal conflict between Jews in America than we really do with other major minority groups. And that's like a like congratulations to us, right? Um, we've done so well um, that we can fight with each other uh, as opposed to fight with our neighbors. And New York's a great example. I mean, you have large, uh, large and thriving Jewish communities. You have large and thriving Muslim communities. Sometimes we are political allies because of all sorts of socioeconomic and other reasons. That you know, a whole variety of issues that we line up together on. What we're trying to argue with our work is okay. That's fine. Political allyship is fine. Um, But what happens when you scratch just below the surface? And what happens when you start probing on issues related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that sometimes your good relations that exist on a daily basis can kind of fall apart the minute that there's violence in the Middle East? Uh, And and when something is as important 
to one community as Israel is to American Jews, and frankly, Palestine is to American Muslims. To simply avoid that topic entirely and just focus on the things that you get along with, well, you might get along perfectly fine for a while, but eventually, since those things are so important to us, they're going to start pulling our communities apart. Yeah, and Dr. Gertzel, I could tell you, having worked in democratic politics off and on for 20 years, I've lived that. Uh, mm-hmm. I've lived that journey. Um, many amazing Muslim friends in the body politic, and it's gotten awkward and gotten complicated during some of the conflicts, particularly with Gaza, where uh, you know you're trying to see the humanity in the other person, uh, see the humanity in the cause, but understand that there is no excuse for uh, targeting of civilians. Right. Full stop. Right. So, right. And and realistically, like you, you know you're not always going to necessarily make people your political allies. I think folks who are involved in in advocacy work, what they want to do is convince other people that they're right in other words, so that they'll be on the right side and vote with us. Um, I'm not sure that that's always the goal. Sometimes the goal is, I'm not necessarily going to convince you that, you're, that I'm right and you're wrong, that Israel's right and the Palestinians are wrong. But you need to start identifying the Jewish community through a prism of kind of character witnessing. Are there folks in the Jewish community whose attitudes towards Israel you admire or want to, or at least understand and therefore you want to be in relationship with, even if ultimately politically we're going to be on the different side of, the, uh, of an issue? To what extent, and by the way, uh, we had Imam Abdullah on uh, yeah. a previous podcast, a wonderful conversation uh, after what had happened in Texas. Uh, and so the work that he's doing, you're doing there, just incredible. Just want to put a plug there. Thank you. Um, I, I do sort of want to understand the Israeli government, as it stands today, obviously the coalition is falling apart, is it not uh, unclear? But it's historic, right? It's mm-hmm. historic that you have uh, an Arab party sitting in government. You've had an evolution where you've had Arab members of the Supreme Court, Arab members of other sort of parts uh, of the democracy, but an actual voting, participating party in the government, whether that is sustainable or not right now with what's going on. The, Put that aside. Have you seen that connect with people at all? Is it is it something where somebody says, "Wow, you know, okay, I think that's great," or is it like, you know, I don't care. These are my talking points. This is my ideology. This is how I believe, and it's just that's just what it's going to be. You know, unfortunately, it's really been much more of the latter, and I think that that's just the world of confirmation bias that we're living in on any issue in the world. Um, you know, when we most of our work at the Hartman Institute is focused on the Jewish community, so. Piece, our work with um, Jewish-Christian relations and Jewish-Muslim relations, I want to say openly, is kind of self-interested. We're, we care about the Jewish community, and we want to have relationships with, with other Americans and people of other faiths, but the majority of our work is with the Jewish community. Uh, in the Jewish community, we're really concerned with the growing distancing from and alienation from Israel, and a lot of our work is trying to strengthen the Jewish community's relationship with Israel. For the folks who already are in some ways committed to Israel, but maybe a little angry at Israel on a whole variety of issues, religious pluralism, occupation, etc., yeah, the new government has been really interesting. It's been an opportunity to make change or make progress on a whole bunch of issues that they're concerned about. People who are already antagonistic towards the project of the state of Israel, <laughs> towards Zionism in general, you know, it they 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 will experience uh, Arabs in the government as lipstick on a pig. 
they'll see it as you know you it, you're you're making something look good, but it's fundamentally broken. They'll characterize Mansour Abbas and his peers as sellouts. So you, you can't really move people on the basis of those types of anecdotal or episodic things. Even though I might view it as like, no, this is actually a, a, a democracy with problems, but a democracy fundamentally. It's really hard to make change with folks who are predisposed uh, with bias against the project to begin with. Dr. Gertzer, can you tell us about the correlation of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism? And does one equal the other? And how do we parse that? I know that that's something that gets a lot of attention these days. Uh, I'm sure Rich and I probably have different uh, definitions of, of certainly the former, but not the latter. But interested yeah. to hear you weigh in here. Well, I think that's, by the way, that's data in and of itself. If you and Rich have different categories, if you agree on one but disagree on the other, that's data because if Jews are going to disagree about this and can do so publicly, okay, well, then there's what to talk about, right? Um, it, look, I, I don't think the question is, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism? I, I think the question is, when is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism? <laughs> uh, and that's when it becomes actually, then you could actually start figuring out what are the thresholds where someone's valuable, valid, legitimate criticism of the state of Israel as might as they might criticize any other nation state on earth crosses over to becoming exceptional in nature, holding Israel to a totally different standard than other democracies around the world, focusing on or making Israel the exemplar uh, of a particular problem. So for instance, when we talk about the church, uh, you know, part of the reason we're talking about this is I, I went a couple weeks ago and gave testimony to the Episcopal Church Convention about a whole series of anti-Israel resolutions. And there were ways in which I felt that that anti-Zionism crossed over to becoming anti-Semitism because it felt as though Jews having power and having a state were becoming a metaphor for the moral problems of the West. That is anti-Zionism that has converged onto anti-Semitism. But we have to be really careful to not categorize any version of criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic, because what that does is it not only damages our capacity to have relationships with people who just have different opinions than us, but it also starts to corrode our capacity as a Jewish community to have difference of opinion. Uh, certainly the fact that some Jews are anti-Zionist cannot make them anti-Semitic. You wouldn't say that Nature Karta or Satmer Jews are anti-Semitic. It, it, the whole thing falls apart in its face. So you can have some versions of anti-Zionism that just don't cross the boundary into becoming either existential threats or even conceptually they don't become anti-Semitic. And I think we have to be careful about that. Well, I think there's is a difficulty here, and I, I uh, maybe Jordan, I disagree. I, I I don't know. I don't. We've ever had this public conversation before, but uh, for me, I find it helpful to coalesce around the IRA definition uh, of anti-Semitism, the working definition. I mean, here is an international organization, all these leading experts. They've they've thought uh, all about um, sort of what is anti-Semitism, what are the lines, what are some examples. And countries have endorsed this. The United States has endorsed this for years, starting with the Obama administration, uh, where you know major Jewish organizations have coalesced around this as well. Um, states around the country are endorsing this uh, definition. The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IRA, IHRA, for those who aren't familiar, has a working definition of anti-Semitism. And yeah, I, I would say, unfortunately, there are Jews who espouse views uh, that fall under that definition. And it, it feels weird to say, you know, you are a Jewish anti-Semite, but I, you know, I think we have a, a difficulty here. If you are Jewish currents, if you are Peter Beinart, if you're if not now, 
and your whole MO is just to label Israel an apartheid state and isolate Israel, undermine Israel, putting Jews at risks, uh, you know, I don't know what we call that otherwise, and I don't know how we normalize that as, as a community. But that's the work. I, I, listen, some of the people you mentioned, um, they're friends of mine, they're colleagues of mine. I don't characterize them as being anti-Semitic. And I think, I think what you just said, Rich, is too easy of a shortcut. Since I have a terminology which is anti-Semite, I have to label them something in order to be able to really oppose them and fight against them. I just don't think that's true. I can deeply... I can find things that are published in Jewish Currents offensive, and I have publicly written about the things that I have. I've responded to them. You know, I've debated Peter Beinart on occasion, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes I don't think it's worth debating. But I can seriously disagree with somebody, think they're wrong, think that their ideas are dangerous, but not necessarily resort to the terminology of referring to someone as anti-Semite. And the risk of using that terminology is that it becomes... Um, it is such, to use Danielle Hartman's phrase, it is such an intolerable deviance to refer to somebody as an anti-Semite that then they become the embodiment of something that is totally dangerous to me. I just don't, th I don't think it's empirically true, and I don't think it's useful. And I'll just push on one other thing. There's got to be a difference between thinking that certain ideas or behaviors in the world are anti-Semitic versus how much do we care about whether a single individual is an anti-Semite. I think this is one of the places where the whole anti-Semitism discourse has gone totally off course. I don't care whether this person is an anti-Semite. And the more that I talk about whether so-and-so is an anti-Semite, you allow somebody to argue back by saying, oh, that person can't be an anti-Semite. She has Jews on her congressional staff. That person can't be an anti-Semite. He hosts Jews on his television show. Well, that's not the interesting question. The question is, are they advancing legislation, giving speeches? Are, are they building an audience? Are they fomenting public discourse in a way that actually is going to be dangerous towards Jews? So we have to focus more on the danger itself rather than the individual. And I think that's I, I, I actually benefit. like that. I like that a lot because I get annoyed with that as well when people say, oh, well, you know, this congressperson, they, they attended a Seder with the community, you know, mm -hmm. right after they opposed funding for the Iron Dome uh, and called Israel an apartheid state. I mean, they, they're just anti-Israel. They're not, they're not anti-Semitic, obviously. And, and so I, I do actually think in, in many cases it is helpful to say, okay, the, 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 what they are peddling is anti-Semitic. What they, what they are pushing are narratives of anti-Semitism. But I actually think that makes it easier for me and others to say, okay, Jewish Currents is peddling anti-Semitism, or Peter Beinart is peddling anti-Semitism. He may not be an anti-Semite, but he's peddling in it. Or, or maybe part of the work is to say what I think that they're saying is fundamentally dangerous. I think they're making room for the possibility of anti-Semitism to emerge. But but I just I, I just want to be much more careful about referring to other Jews with the terminology of anti-Semitism. I think it not only is dangerous, but I think it undermines the category. Because uh, then what you're going to wind up happening in a polarized and partisan world is that gradually half the Jewish people are considered the other half to be anti-Semitic and vice versa. And and. We don't want that. Like, you don't want to have a situation where, because, you know, half of America watches Tucker Carlson, and I believe that sometimes Tucker Carlson on his show allows the advancement of ideas that are endangering to Jews and anti-Semitic. So now, by, by, by association, you know, half of America is anti-Semitic, and therefore, half the Jewish community, it's just, 
we're we're down then down a slippery slope where anti-Semitism, which once could have been the one thing that held us together as a Jewish people, is actually dividing us entirely against one another. And, and Dr. Kircher, to that question, Rich and I talk a lot about the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party, uh, and vis-a-vis Israel, and taken to some uh, some some taken to the extreme of anti-Semitism. Um, you know, I consider myself a soldier, a loyal Democrat, who's somebody who, who wants to fight this fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. Um, how do you think that's going? And how do you think uh, that portends for Jewish-Israel relations, diaspora-Israel relations, in the in the next in the next two decades? So, so Jared, and by the way, please call me Yehuda. Enough with this, Doctor. Okay, okay. Um, it's uh, gone. It's it's gone. It's gone. It's done. You. Boom. It's Thank gone. you. Yeah. Um, I think it's an overblown story, and I think it's a story that largely serves the right. Um, when you have a situation, Wait, when you see, Judah, can you re- repeat that for Rich? I just want to make sure his headphones were working uh, it's a, correctly it's because an, it's not only a story that is <laughs> that serves the right. I think it's largely promoted by the right. When you see actual legislation in Congress, um, any sort of BDS legislation in Congress, real condemnations of Israel's actions, you're talking about somewhere between five and ten Democrats who vote in who vote. Um, who vote for, for in favor of those resolutions. Five to 10 Democrats. They happen to be noisy. They happen to have really good Twitter accounts. So they are able to tell a story about themselves that, that portrays themselves as being the future of the Democratic Party. But there's very little evidence that they actually hold ma- any significant political power. And if we're gonna play that game, there is an equal number of completely off the wall anti-Semitic Republican Congress people. Marjorie Taylor Greene and and Lauren Boebert and Madison Cawthorn, who mainstream Republicans are embarrassed by, disagree with, don't like that they, you know, they're the same folks who are voting against all sorts of Ukraine, anti-Ukraine, uh, anti-Russian, Ukra- pro-Ukrainian sanctions, and and you and you you hear not nearly enough conversation about the battle for the soul for the Republican Party about anti-Semitism. There's unquestionably a battle for the soul of the Republican Party about Trumpism. But if we're going to play that game, it's equally pronounced, if not more so, on the right. So by I feel like I'm t- we're taking the bait by saying there's this battle for the soul of the Democratic Party on Israel. Show me a situation in which there's a real debate on the floor of the DNC and a real split around Israel and then we can have a real conversation. But until then, I think it's I think it's a non-story that's that's only serving one political party. Uh, I'm not getting into whataboutism. I'm not going to support Marjorie Green Taylor or anything like that. But uh, I, I would I would say there is examples. There are examples recently of you know the inability of a Pelosi-controlled House of Representatives to move a resolution to condemn anti-Semitism. They had to pull the resolution in order to put everybody else in. Right? It couldn't just be about anti-Semitism. You see the squad drive the internal decision making. Uh, hold on, of, hold on, Rich. Uh, of, of the leadership, often. Rich, and, Rich, and Rich, Rich. Well, well, you can't wait, just wait, wait, you can't just say point, that. One other point. One other point. <laughs> and this is that it's not you know if you just looked at like okay I, I I want to look at resolutions that call for Israel to be wiped off the map or you know endorse BDS. Yeah, you're gonna have five people. But they're smarter about it, right? They've, they're more political about it. Now it's about conditioning aid to Israel. Now your number starts to expand a bit. You start getting into, quote unquote, mainstream members, members of the Senate. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think I, it's so cut and dry. It's not cut. It's definitely not cut and dry. I just think that um, that's that particular story, that there's a battle for the soul of the Democratic Party, is an attempt by... Um, 
by conservative actors to try to portray American politics as following the path of Jeremy Corbyn and England. And I just don't think it's, I don't think the numbers are there. I don't think the story is there. I don't think America is like England with respect to its relationship to Israel. And ultimately, like, what is holding up Iron Dome funding? It's not the squad. It's... <laughs> It's a Republican senator. That's the ultimate thing that's holding up Iron Dome funding. Push comes to shove. There's a lot of noise and performative noise around anti-Israel stuff from a, a small wing uh, of the Democratic Party. But I actually don't think that it, it amounts to the kind of political power that actually should make us nervous. And, and just, Rich, as one parenthetical, I love you, but there is zero set of facts in which the squad is driving the leadership agenda in the House or the Senate. I, like you know that that's not true. I mean, maybe there are people who would say it's true, but I I know Nancy Pelosi and I uh, I know Nancy Pelosi's team doesn't take them into account, and I know Leader Schumer's team. You know, other than that, uh, AOC is a constituent of Chuck Schumer. I don't think that that she gets very much notice on a policy making level. But I know we have other stuff to cover, and we could probably get into th- just this point all day. And I don't want to uh, you know belabor the point too much. So. Well, I do want to pick up on the thread about Jeremy Corbyn and Corbynism, because I, I and I think this goes to the core of what is happening in the American body politic, but also inside the Jewish community itself, inside this debate. Last year, we had a glimpse of something, right, during the war uh, in Gaza. And we saw with major leaders in, in Democratic liberal circles, Bernie Sanders, AOC, be able to wield their millions of followers on Twitter, Instagram, etc., and suddenly a groundswell of views throughout celebrities, throughout influencers, throughout grassroots, and in, into professional settings, and you know everywhere, right? And I don't know exactly what to call the views that they were espousing, other than to me, very much close to Corbynism, moving moving that way. And it was sort of mainstreamed. It was difficult for, for centrist Democratic candidates in their primaries and things moving around. We heard this from the New York, uh, I've heard things from the New York mayoral race that, that came into play for, for some candidates as well. Uh, how, how do we deal with moments like that, though? And how do we talk to our own community to say, no, 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 th- th- this, this is not right. Th- this is yeah. moving you into where the red line is. So, I mean, I'd like, if I can, to move away from just the political candidates and more to the heart of where I think our work is and what I'm concerned about, which is actually the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. Uh, and and what where you're 100% right is, I think May 2021 was something of a watershed moment around Jewish public attitudes and public conversation around Israel, uh, partly because of factors that are not actually, they're not... Um, inherently ideological, but the way that social media can get used to drive very particular and very polarizing political viewpoints was like hugely on display in May 2021. Uh, Many of the questions that we got as an educational organization is, my teens are being exposed to a story about Israel on Instagram that is totally different than the one that I'm being exposed to, and they have no idea how to respond or how to engage with it. And any time a story is going to wind up get, getting Instagrammed, it's going to be a it's going to be a limited version of what's actually taking place on any on one side or another. So you're 100 percent right that I think the climate around which Israel is operating in our Jewish community is changing significantly. And I think this is the big educational challenge of the next 20 to 30 years. The Jewish community it should have been the last 20 or 30 years, <laughs> but our anxiety about actually being willing to talk about these issues kind of got in the way. Now, you know, what makes it so 
powerful is there are ways in which Israel being in the magnifying glass can also help serve Israeli policy. Do you remember like early in the war, there was that whole thing where they bombed the AP tower? Right? And, their, and their response, their talking points were, well, we knew that there were Hamas operatives in there. And of course, the international community came down terribly on Israel for bombing the AP Tower. Well, I don't know if you followed it, but like in August or September, four months later, the Israeli military leadership were like, you know, we probably shouldn't have bombed the AP Tower. So what are we supposed to make of that story? <laughs> There's some measure of public criticism around Israel's actions and Israel's policies that actually serve uh, all of us, as even supporters of Israel, to say, no, no, you're being watched. People are paying attention. The other potty of work, which is on us as educators and as thinkers and as a Jewish community, is to help people understand the difference between legitimate criticism of Israel's policies, like maybe you shouldn't have bombed that tower, versus the fundamental right of Israel to defend itself when it's under rocket attack. So I think that, you know, again, this is just the market in which we live. Israel is just under the, the magnifying glass of the world at all times. And we have to be better as a Jewish community to help ourselves, our kids, our institutions to be able to parse between what are, our, what are the commitments we have to hold to um, and, and where are the places in which we're allowed to have, you know, dissent and disagreement. I personally was fine with the bombing of the tower. Uh, I, I think if you have a Hamas intel center in there and you give people enough notice and you get out uh, all the people and the way that the Israelis conduct these bombings with notifications and time, et cetera, and you're in a campaign like that and you believe it's a time-sensitive target, you know, the, the international community is always going to condemn Israel. Uh, I take the point on that. But, um, you know, my, my question is really we saw this bleed not just into sort of the debate of the Jewish community, we saw this bleed into DEI programs inside corporations. We saw this bleed into school curriculums. Uh, and we see that a lot where this this criticism of Israel moves itself into something else uh, for Jews in the workplace or at school or, or in other locations. And, uh, you know, I've, I've followed what's going on at Google you know, for example, there's been some press around this. They had a DEI official who was called out, but it wasn't just that, okay, they have a DEI official who has a past of anti-Semitism. They were really pushing internally a lot of anti-Israel, borderline, I would say, anti-Semitic narratives from the DEI staff, from other employees uh, on their various Googler listservs internally. And what you find when you talk to uh, some people uh, who, who have been in that world there are a lot of Jews um, who sort of are used as the wrapping paper for those in the agenda to really attack Israel to say, listen, we have we have Jews who are critical of Israel here. And so it's OK. It's OK. So we're going to make this an issue. And by the way, you can't say the Jews of, of Google support Israel because because we have Jews you know, with us as well. I mean, so really, I mean, and then if you're the, the, the pro-Israel Jew at Google, I mean, you must feel like you're just completely under attack and isolated. It's like it's like you know, for observant Jews who ever went uh, to to work, and your non-observant colleagues were there uh, during Shavuos, you know, working or on the last days of Pesach or something, and and somebody says, "Why do why did they come to work but you don't?" Right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, how do we deal with that as a community? Yeah, I, I think you know there there are 
definitely pieces of this that we're seeing as an organization. We were in the news, you know, a few months ago because we got, you know, we, we started talking to a marketing company and they basically litmus tested us about the fact that we are a Zionist organization and didn't want to work with us as a result. It was a whole thing. So we're not, we're not immune to it. We see it. We also see it in, among our stakeholders. Look, you can always do an offensive strategy and a defensive strategy. I, I think that what what concerns me is that when is when people try to use these stories to to move the football on the issues that they already are predisposed to care about. So folks who are opposed to any aspect of the of the DEI agenda are going to use this as a vehicle of painting, of tarring uh, efforts towards diversity and equity and inclusion as being fundamentally um, fundamentally bad. Look, they're anti-Semitic. They're anti-Israel. I think the look the majority of American Jews are liberal in orientation, right? In one way or another, liberal Jews or liberal politically. That there's a pretty wide range among that liberalism, uh, but American Jews are, and I think rightly should, um, going to be committed to and passionate about issues like diversity and inclusion. Equity is a little more complicated. We want to be on the side of racial justice, and I think we should be on the side of racial justice. So the problem is that a lot of the, the, the buckets in which that stuff works right now has made it really easy to categorize Jews as white folks, to categorize Israelis as the white people in a conflict with black and brown people. And I think those are really dangerous ideas. But I would like to figure out how we as a Jewish community still talk about racial justice and equity and inclusion and all of these good values and don't yield them either to those who believe like, oh, because there's anti-Israel and anti-Semitic sentiment in it, we have to throw away that whole agenda. <laughs> I, don't wanna, I don't want that to be the case, nor do I want to just yield diversity and equity and inclusion to its worst actors. You, kind of, you just have to position yourself in the middle of that fight. That's why I think a lot of the biggest challenges that we as a Jewish community face right now are basically ideological. What does it mean to really care about Israel in the 21st century. It's not the same as our grandparents who cared about Israel because they were born into a particular time in history. How do we actually, how do we advance the causes of liberal democracy around the world? How do we hold that intention with other values? Those are amazing questions. And, and a lot of what you described are basically what happens when you caricature those questions and turn it into a question of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. We want to reject that on all sides. I, I want to come come back to that that last point you made about the, the, the difference between our generation and our grandparents' generation. Because I think it's very interesting, especially in the age of social media and twenty four seven news cycles and what you can do with information. I, I would just push back a little bit and say, listen, this was this was April thirteenth this year, University of Illinois, Champaign Urbana. Uh, this the title of the of a talk called "Transitional Justice Lecture: Unfinished Business: Zionism is Racism and Racial Discrimination." And you go down to the bottom of the event, co-sponsored by the Office of the Vice Chancellor for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Uh, I am not attacking DEI. I am I am very much concerned about how DEI has welcomed, you know, into into the hen, the anti-Semitism masquerading uh, as anti-Zionism. And we see that in other places. I want to come back for a second. We are in an interesting moment because this also goes back to the idea of, are you, are you helping Israel or are you hurting Israel by speaking out, by, by writing an op-ed, by giving a pulpit, a sermon uh, on, on Shabbat and, and expressing your criticism of what the Israeli government is doing. And I understand the line between criticism and, and anti-Semitism, and I respect that line. But we do live in a different age than our grandparents where, you know, you're, you're posting online your sermons. 
your, you know, a, a blog on Jewish currents or in times of Israel or ever goes everywhere and gets used by detractors of Israel and anti-Semites as their sourcing. Uh, and we think we're in this internal bubble, you know, of a Jewish community talking to itself and evolving and improving, you know, and, and by the way, we have this issue. Israel has its own issue because it's a democracy with free press. So everything's out in the open all the time, right? Scandals, this and that, pers- prosecutions, just, you know, people wanting to kill each other on the Knesset floor, crazy statements made in politics. So obviously everything's under a a, a, a microscope. Um, but the question I have is, do do young Jews understand that? That, you know, my God, we have so many people who hate us and want to kill us and want to destroy us. We, we, we don't need to do it to ourselves. Again, I think I want to divide between what I think are a lot of very well-meaning and very well-intended people who believe that their actions in being critical of the state of Israel stem from the fact that Jews have the ability to shape our own destiny. And there's something inherently Zionist about it. Right? Any Jew who believes that they actually can take control of history and shape it and make it different is in some ways influenced by Zionism. That was our great accomplishment. I think a lot of the folks who are most publicly critical of Israel are doing so because they think they have a moral responsibility at a particular time of history to help Israel to correct its flaws. You and I may think that that's the wrong way to go about it and that it's going to be ineffective. By the way, those two things can be different. <laughs> Right? I, th- I happen to think it's more ineffective. I'm not as troubled um, a- as an inherent act of like an angry anti-Israel tweet. Um, in part because it's, power- it's largely powerless. It, it largely has driven a lot more pro-Israel support by those who want to defend it. And it has enabled the Israeli government to say, we don't want to pay attention to that. It's it reflected of something that doesn't bother us that much. Um, I, I, th- I want to view this as I, I still want to view, maybe naively, those who care so deeply about the Jewish people's actions, image, and reputation in the world, whether they're on the right or on the left, are demonstrating to us that they are the people who want to be in this conversation, and I want to continue to talk to them. Because, by the way, for, to, to both of you, anger at Israel and alienation from Israel are different problems, and the vast majority of young American Jews are not angry at Israel. They're not pro-Israel. They just don't care that much about it. And you talk about like where could you make educational difference, where could you make an inroads is with people who are still passionate. So I think a lot of the folks who you're who you're who you have in your sights, the people who you think are just doing it wrong, going about it wrong in terms of their criticisms of Israel, they're st- trying to stay engaged with a project that they think implicates them. And I, I have to view that as an opening to say, okay. I disagree with how you're talking about this. I disagree with your assessment of the reality. Uh, but there's something in what you're describing that correlates with what what peoplehood means, which is you care about the Jewish people and you care about how it acts in the world. I, I guess my last question here, and I know we, we got to get to our lightning round. Jared Jared loves lightning round. I, yeah. I delay his lightning round. It, it's a, it's I also a have a really bad just, joke to go with uh, this, but go, go ahead. Okay, 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 okay. Well, that, bad timing again on the joke. I mean, just, just hold on a second. Let's see if I can give you an opening for one. But uh, I think my, my question is this. I'm somebody who considers myself pro-Israel. And I have been critical at times of the state of Israel, right? I, I'm, I'm happy to be critical of how they've approached Ukraine. We had Elliot Cohen on our, our last podcast. I don't think anybody would consider him less than pro-Israel. Very outspokenly critical of, of how they approach things on Ukraine. If all you do every day is wake up thinking, how can I criticize Israel today? 
what am I going to print? What am I going to put online that's critical of Israel? What, who am I going to speak to today to rally more people to my cause of being against Israel in some way? How am I going to undermine Israel today? That's all you do all day long. That's your MO. I, I don't know how to accept them into the mainstream of the Jewish community. I don't know how to normalize them. I don't know how to bring them into the conference of presidents of Jewish organizations. You know, a lot. Uh, <laughs> the thing I, I think I care about most as a teacher and as an institution leader is this weird idea of Jewish peoplehood. How do we hold on to this notion of being a people in spite of the fact that, like, our co-religionists think of us as a religion, which we're not, in spite of the fact that um, as for as long as we've been one people, we've also been made up of all these tribes. So it's baked into our DNA that we're supposed to have a whole bunch of Jews who we disagree with, who behave differently, whether they're denominationally different or sects or other types of Jews. So I, I really care about that outcome. And there's two ways you can go about it, Rich. One is the way that you described it, which is constantly monitoring the boundaries. Who's outside the tent? I got to tell you, it's a hobby of Jewish leaders to kind of constantly be looking for figuring out where I can draw the tent to exclude people. And you know what? It's sad. There's something satisfying about it. That person, I have nothing to do with them. They're outside my tent and outside my community. But as a habit... It doesn't actually wind up enriching the story of Jewish peoplehood. It actually just winds up narrowing it. And by the way, you spent all staying with our tent metaphor. If you spent all the time at the poles, you're never in the middle of the tent doing the thing inside the tent that you were supposed to do. I would rather be inside the Jewish people talking about all of the richness and majesty and all the things that we care about, what the state of Israel is for, what it's supposed to do, and try to figure out how to make that tent big enough for as many people who eventually want to make their return back to the center as want to. But it's, it's not that I disagree with you that there aren't people who drive me crazy, who I wish I could just basically kick out. Of course there are. We might not have the same people. I just think it's a bad hobby for the Jewish community. And it's one that we engage in because we like the politics that are involved with it, but not necessarily because it's in the interest of Jewish peoplehood. Yehuda, it reminds me of the old joke about two Jews stuck on a desert island, and they build three mm -hmm. synagogues, one for one guy to worship in, one for another guy to worship in, and one that neither yeah. of them will step foot in. That's right. We all got those, right? <laughs> and with that, we're going to take it to our lightning round and ask you a couple quick questions just to get a little bit of a better sense of, of uh, who you are. Rich, you want to go first? All right. Favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Uh, some of the ones that I like are not really appropriate for a mainstream audience. No, no, audience, no. It's okay. It's okay. No, no, we, that, we're allowed. This yeah, is like, you're allowed uh, to curse in, in Yiddish. Well, it's not really a curse, yeah. but I, I do like the phrase goyim nachas. The th Gentiles delight thinks that like... Well, that that whole thing, but it, it it the reason it's it, some people find it offensive is like you're dividing the world between Jews and Gentiles. But I still think that that's a meaningful distinction. But I like the phrase "goyim nachas." Um, Amos Oz used it in reference to nationalism. He was like, "It's goyim nachas," but I still need to have a state, right? So I'll take that one. <laughs> All right, future of Aaron Judge with the Yankees. It's gonna be or not so much. Yeah, I think he's gonna sign with the Yankees. I I. Um, I think, if you, do you remember what happened with Jeter? Same thing happened with Derek Jeter, right? Where he got into a fight with the team around arbitration, didn't like what they said in the arbitration hearings, and then ultimately kind of looked at the numbers, Yankees will pay more, and looked at the reputation of a life in pinstripes. The only, I would say, a 3% chance that he goes to Anaheim. But other uh, than that, I think he stays. Alavai, alavai. Rich. I have no views on this conversation. My Cubs are below 500, so that's <laughs> a five. All right. 
a Jew, a Jew who loves the Cubs is like it's like a weird <laughs> double. It's like a double masochism. And, and you, 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 and that proves I have no tent, yeah, right? Like there's exactly. no doors to my tent. My tent exactly. is always open. Obviously, yeah. I'm I'm a Cubs fan. All right, Rich. And in fact, one day it, it paid off with the World Series. Okay, one more. Last one. Okay. Favorite favorite New York restaurant. Ooh. Oh wow. Favorite New York restaurant. Such a biased podcast. Where's New York? I'm sorry. It's just it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Oh man. I mean, if you if we went to Jerusalem, it'd be better. But uh, I like Izzy's on the West Side. Izzy's on the West Side, not Izzy's in Crown Heights. It's just a schlep to go to Grand Heights. I did. Go I, there. I live in I Crown Heights, so it's not schlep yeah. for me. Yeah, I live in Riverdale, so the okay. one on the, on the West Side is good. Okay, I like Izzy's. All right, Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate having you on. Appreciate it. Take care, guys. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Run, run.